Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, young and old and everything in between, welcome to the Joe Feed Yourself podcast. I'm Joe Barbito, and today I'm joined by a fellow fan of Burwood Tap and the host of the Where's AJ podcast, my good friend, Michael Abujaude. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Joe. I'm a, I'm a fan, so it's, it's exciting to be on. I'm a fan of yours as well, so I'm happy to have you here. We're doing a little home and home right now, I believe. Uh, the show that I just did on your podcast came out on Apple today, correct? Correct. Yep. I shouldn't even say today because we're recording this way before <laughs> that our show is going to come out. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, thanks for having me on your show. So um, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about your podcast first? Yeah. So um, my podcast is Where's AJ? Uh, it's really just conversations that I have with friends that I know. We just talk about um, all things, whether it's, you know, life, personal finances, growing up. Uh, what's next, uh, how to chase excellence, how to be the best version of yourself. It's really just conversations that I have with my friends uh, that I that I just share with the rest of the world because I think they're quite valuable and fun. What was your favorite one you've done so far? Outside of mine, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I liked, they're all, they're all nice in different ways. Mm. Like, um, I think... The ones that I always enjoy, I have a good friend of mine, Christopher Mukherjee, who has his own podcast as well. It seems like uh, podcasters just uh, find each other. Uh, but his, he has a podcast called Anvil Dump, and we, I've had him on my podcast three times, and I'm waiting to make an appearance on, appearance on his. And all we do is just catch up, talk about like childhood stories and things that are going on with our lives. So it's a nice catching, nice way to catch up with them and do that sort of stuff. And then the other two people that I've had on were um, a coworker, a former coworker of mine, uh, Matt Troy, and he's someone that I look up to a few years older than me. I view him as a mentor and uh, just being able to pick his brain and, and learn from him was especially beneficial. And then my other guest mario Hajj, who's a it's like a brother to me uh it's just always fun talking to him so I, I like them for different reasons i think they're they're all special the one the one episode which just gave me like which i thought was incredible conversation but i was not pleased with the end result of it in terms of audio quality was the one with you mm -hmm. it just got released like it, it's the best conversation but just the fact that the audio was so messed up just <laughs> irritated me. So we'll have to do it again. We'll do a we'll do a part two for sure. We will for sure do a part two, uh, and hopefully the audio comes out better on this one. But uh, you know, I hope everyone that's listening to this will tune into Michael's show. Where's AJ on Apple Podcasts and uh, listen to the cool conversations he has. He's a smart guy, and I'm excited to have him here today because he's a smart guy from Lebanon, and uh, he's going to be sharing a lot of knowledge today about um, his country, growing up there, etc. Um, I wanted to start off by asking, what is the most obscure or weird fact you know about Lebanon? There, so the weirdest one, and do you remember JFK's inauguration? I think it was his inauguration speech where he said, um, ask, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you could do for your country. Of course. Well, JFK ripped that off a Lebanese author who wrote <laughs> something very similar to it, I think like 30 something years before. And uh, even though it wasn't verbatim, what JFK said, it was 80% the same. Mm -hmm. 
And so uh, that that's a fun one that I know that JFK ripped off Gibran Khalil Gibran, who's a Lebanese artist, writer, and uh, actually has a statue uh, right outside the Boston Public Library. Really? Yeah. Uh, right off uh, Boylston. Is there a big Lebanese population in Boston? I know you and I have discussed that there were a number of Lebanese people that we went to college with together at Northeastern, but outside of those people, are there a lot of Lebanese immigrants or uh, descendants in, in the Boston area? Um, I don't think, um, you know, a larger population than what you would expect there to be just distributed across the U S mm-hmm. but uh, there are a handful of, um, you know, successful Lebanese people in Boston, for example, um, Bijou, the nightclub in, uh, in Boston is owned by a Lebanese guy from the same family as me. We're not related, but he has the same last name, which okay. is a funny story associated with that. Uh, um, he also owns quite a few of the restaurants on Newberry and things like that. Uh, I, I once went to a Lebanese church in Boston, um, and it reminded me of being back in Lebanon. <laughs> uh but it, it didn't feel like there was a large, there was a community. It just wasn't uh, large. This guy was just important enough that he got his statue yeah, in Boston. Exactly. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I think it's funny the way you said he was ripped, he ripped off the artist. And I feel like that's where like, if you're a JFK fan, you might say, well, he was inspired by it. You know, he, <laughs> he took cues from it. Um, the good artists create the great artists steal, you know? I, I love that. I love yeah. that quote. Yeah, I was always thinking about that when anyone says ripped off. I'm like, well, we're all we're all just ripping each other off. Um, exactly. I, I, I can't think of a completely original idea that I've come up with that no one else has come up with or socialized or I've heard somewhere else and turned into my own. Yeah, we're just all. all we're just ripping off one another. That's exactly. It. Talking a bit more about Lebanon proper now, it's. Uh, situated in the Middle East. I believe it's considered part of the Levant, if I'm not mistaken. Um, It's on the Mediterranean, right? That is correct, yeah. And there are so many different types of people that live in Lebanon, right? You have different ethnic groups, different religions, all sorts of nationalities represented. Growing up there, were you aware of all these different people that were around you all the time? Um, When I was young, no. But then as I, as I grew older, I became more and more aware. Um, say, so I grew up in a town in Mount Lebanon called Brumana. And it was primarily a Christian town because that's where the Christians lived in Mount Lebanon. And a small town, I went to a British Quaker school. And the majority of my classmates were people that were either from that town or neighboring towns for the mm-hmm. most part. And so we all had the same religion, pretty much. Um, there, Lebanon's pretty divided into like sects, and they live in. A lot of them live in some like the, the, you'd have fifty percent of two different religions living in same in the same cities or towns and stuff. But for the most part, you could clearly draw lines where like the majority of people live. And so I uh, I went to school there, and you know did most of my education there. And I was surrounded by a lot of people that, you know, were middle-class, uh, you know, Christian background, things of that nature. And so I thought like, Oh, most of Lebanon is like that. And even though we had, and a bunch of my really good friends were f- from uh, abroad, whether they were 
Syrians or from Saudi Arabia or from Sri Lanka or, uh, you know, different parts of Africa. And then they, they came to the States or Iraq and um, they were from different religions, etc. cetera. Uh, I, I realized that like, oh, there's, you know, a bunch of different people that come into Lebanon. But, you know, when I was a teenager and I started reading and learning more about Lebanon's history, you realize that there's also a decent amount of Syrians in Lebanon because there's, you know, um, there was this whole back and forth with Syria as part of our history. There were also a bunch of Palestinians in Lebanon. A lot of people from the Gulf come and visit the Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, et cetera. Uh, you also have a lot of people from Southeast Asia that come to Lebanon as migrant workers. So they're, they're working in people's houses like help as domestic helpers and, and things of that nature. Um, you have some people from Africa. There was a lot of Lebanese people that worked in Africa, my grandfather included. And, and so there's relationships between those countries. And then, you know, mainly the people that come from the West are either, uh, you know, tourists or people that are, for example, volunteers at certain mm -hmm. organizations or are part of international organizations. But you really have a large mix of people. Um, you also, I think, among the Lebanese people, there is around like 15 plus religions or sects of religions that exist. Mm -hmm. So not only do you have Christians, you have like Christian Catholics, Christian Maronites, uh, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, uh, and just different, different uh, sects of religions. And uh, they just, they just make it work for, for the most part. <laughs> Would you say that religion is one of the factors that influences your life in Lebanon the most because you said, you know, you grew up in a Christian town and went to a Christian school and there's a lot of different religions in Lebanon. Is that one of, if not the biggest driver of what your experience will be like as a Lebanese person? For, for me, yes, because it dictated where I lived. It dictated how I was raised, the, the holidays that I celebrated, uh, the people that we knew. Uh, et cetera. And all, and all that were, you know, major components of my life. I think people strongly identify with their religion mm -hmm. now, now less so than like 10, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I think it's continually going on a downward trend and people want a separation of, you know, church and state and all that stuff. Uh, but, but earlier when I was growing up, yeah, religion was, was a big deal. A lot of people, you know, belong to political parties that were primarily driven by religion uh, and different sects within that religion. Uh, and then ideology second. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, religion, religion was a big, big part of just the type of Lebanese person that I am, right? And what, what kind of Lebanon I lived in and what I was exposed to. Historically, how did we get to this point? It depends how, how far back you want to go. Uh, I think, you know, Lebanon's history starts a few hundred, if not thousand years before Christ. Um, very historically rich um, part of the world and just geographical area. Uh, I'd say, you know, Phoenicians, which are, you know, the, essentially the group of people that lived in the Levant area, which is now considered modern day Lebanon and in Syria and Jordan and that stuff. Um, 
they were the first people to build boats and sail in boats. They've, I, I don't know if this is completely true, but I've read that they've, you know, they discovered the U.S. before Christopher Columbus did. Like they were just, they were along, they were around that long ago and they were on boats that long ago. Um, then there's just, you know, Le Beirut, the capital of Lebanon was built and destroyed seven times just from historical battles. You can see Roman ruins in the city and just all over the country. Um, if you've seen ancient aliens on History Channel, <laughs> they talk about... Uh, the world's largest single slab of stone that they okay. can't they can't like describe like how this was you know essentially moved off the ground and lifted up that's in lebanon and tripoli so like thousands of years ago um but more recently i think what we now consider as lebanon the independent state uh, got that title in i think 1943 is when we gained our independence um we were from under Fran france mm -hmm. so the lebanese flag used to be the french flag with the cedar tree in the middle and then when we gained our independence they essentially left the cedar tree in the middle but added uh red two red stripes on the top and bottom of the flag and then the white in the middle uh, so we got our independence from, from france in the 40s there was some issues in the 50s and the 60s i think we went through a prosperous time of like economic success. And that's where the title of like the parents of the Paris of the Middle East came from, mm -hmm. that was from Lebanon in the sixties. Everyone jokes now that we were a more advanced society uh, in the sixties than we are now. Um, you know, we, we, we had trains in the sixties. We don't have trains in Lebanon now. Uh, and so after the sixties, uh, I think there were some, you know, towards the end of the 60s, um, just conflicts and war in the region. And then uh, there was a civil war in Lebanon in the 70s that stretched until the early 90s. And then there was a few occupations here and there, and then a war in 2006, and then economic collapse <laughs> in 2019, currency devaluation and all that stuff so really really crazy crazy piece of history and uh i feel like there's you know it, it goes through lebanon's a very cyclical country mm -hmm. where there are periods of like peace and stability and economic prosperity and then like times of just like violence assassinations corruption economic downturn etc yeah What's interesting to me is throughout all of these things you've described and French occupation and then kind of the dramatic swing downward that's happened there. Every time I meet someone who is Lebanese, and like I said, I met a fair amount of them at Northeastern, very warm, very welcoming, like very open. Um, I think I mentioned before, I knew someone who described how, you know, even when she lived in the States, she had kind of like more of a traditional Lebanese welcoming for guests where she would always have like nuts and figs and dates out and there'd always be something to drink and she'd always have food on the table. Did you see that growing up? Did you see, you know, this very welcoming attitude? And then did, did you realize when you came to the States that it's not necessarily like that everywhere? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we were, we were spoiled in Lebanon. 
Lebanon, it's it's really a, a country where people welcome you with open arms. And, and everyone, when they meet you pre-COVID, will give you a hug and will give you a kiss on the cheek, right? <laughs> Just as like a form of welcoming you. And, um, you know, I remember <laughs> growing up when we would have guests over, you know, the house had to, like, you, you know, all these like memes of like, oh, you have a guest over and now you have to clean your bedroom. Like, even yeah. though no one's going to go. It was yeah. always that kind of stuff. But it's like, oh. Now I have to go get sweets and we have to make sure that we have coffee and tea and all this stuff, or we'll make this cake and this cake's for the guests only. You can't have any of this because we're going to eat it when the guests come. And, um, you know, people are very welcoming. Our culture revolves around food and drinking. Um, and, you know, every, every time you come over to someone's house, you can expect to spread. Every time you go to a restaurant, Lebanese restaurants, it's really you know, family style food where they'll bring like either cold or warm appetizers that had salads or hummus or, you know, stuffed grape leaves or all, whatever it is. And everyone would share and eat. And it's, it's just a bunch of different plates. And it's more of like a communal meal that you have versus, oh, I'll have my cheeseburger without lettuce and mm-hmm. I'll have my cob salad and, <laughs> and all that stuff. Uh, and then if you're at a, you know, and our restaurants are huge. Like I've been to restaurants in the States where you're like, oh, okay, this fits like two, three, 400 people. Our restaurants in Lebanon can fit over a thousand people. Like the big ones in the mountains are huge, huge, huge. And like you'd say, that's sit, just insane. And, and people would do weddings at these mountains, like restaurants in the mountains, because the restaurant's huge. It's massive. So a Lebanese wedding could be a thousand people. Probably not a thousand people, but like a few hundred, yeah. And uh, and you can have it in these large restaurants that also serve as like outdoor venues, indoor outdoor venues. Uh, but the cool thing is sometimes when you go to a restaurant and it's not completely packed, you'll have your appetizers and your main course on one table, and then they'll set up another table with fruits and dessert, and you just move tables because it's easier for you to move tables and just enjoy a clean table than have to wait for them to clean your table, clear it out and then put the stuff. So, so that's the awesome. That, the fact that you have food served on a new table for you, dessert. And mo- most times it's like, they don't ask you what you want for, for dessert. If you're at these traditional restaurants, they just bring 20 different types of fruit, four different types of like sweets. And the guy walks around with coffee and tea and all that stuff. And we, we just keep on eating. That's all we do. Lebanese know how to eat. What, what is, uh, if you're going to have someone over, um, in an ideal world, the, uh, not even not COVID, I mean, not living in studio apartment in Streeterville, um, and you're going to have people over, what is your ideal like Lebanese spread that you want to put out to, to greet your guests? Like if we're, let's say coming over to just hang out with some like sn- foods to snack on, definitely make a salad, either tabbouleh or fatouche, which are just two different types of green salad. Uh, I'll have hummus dip for sure. Um, I'll probably do, um, you know, something with a flatbread, like a manouche with za'atar, which is a like kind of spice herb The you add. Um, and, and once I tried to do this uh, <laughs> dip called mahamara, which uh, is essentially you, you get like a bell pepper and you roast the bell pepper then you peel it you blend it you put 
some molasses with it, uh, some lemon, some tomato. You can add some carrot, and you you like blend this thing and you turn it into a dip, and it's 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 very very good. And so once uh, I wanted to make that, I was like, I love hamada. I'm gonna make it for my friends. And uh, I realized that I didn't have a blender or a food processor. <laughs> and so uh, I was just trying to dice these peppers and carrots together. And the taste came out okay, but uh, it just didn't, it looked like a deconstructed uh, hamura. But that, that's really what I do if I'm trying to keep it, you know, light. Uh, if, if I could cook like a meal, I, I'd definitely cook something with, um, you know, a lot of our food revolves around... Um, onions and garlic you'll mm -hmm. find onions and garlic in almost any lebanese dish mm -hmm. we'll just saute it in the beginning and so i'll do something like uh peas carrots ground beef rice tomatoes uh, and all that sauteed in um in garlic and onions it's called uh bezelotas which is like peas and rice pretty much um i'd love i'd love to make like uh shawarma or like just all these, you know, sandwiches that people can enjoy with, with garlic and, and veggies and that stuff. So that's kind of what, what I would prepare. I'm a sucker for garlic and onions to start anything off. So that sounds <laughs> great. Most of what you're describing is it's a Middle Eastern Mediterranean-ish palette, uh, you know, palette variety of ingredients. Does Lebanese food take any serious departures from that or does it have its own flair that you tend to find in dishes that you won't find in other parts of the region i think a lot of the food in the levant region you know it's a lot of the same ingredients a lot of the same names uh preparation is very similar i think region to region they just differ by maybe the types of spices that they use or one country might add an ingredient that the other country doesn't normally add. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, you could taste the difference between like Lebanese food and Syrian food mm -hmm. or Lebanese food and Jordanian food. But for the most part, it's, it's very similar in my opinion. But you're going to say Lebanese is the best, right? Yeah, I'd say um, Lebanese is very good. We also have a large Armenian uh, diaspora in Lebanon. Uh, I think it's the largest in the world outside of Armenia, but I'm not, don't quote me on that. It's either in Lebanon or um, California. Mm -hmm. One of us has like the largest Armenian diaspora um, and they add a ton of spices to their food. Mm -hmm. And so like a Lebanese flatbread, if you get it like at an Armenian place, it'll taste a bit better because it has a bit more spices in it. And uh, I, I enjoy spices. So in your house and your parents were cooking, what was the dish that got you the most excited um, to see that your mom or your dad was making? Oh, easy. Or grandma, of course, you know, grandma, grandpa's involved here, but what was your favorite? There are several, uh, but my favorite is kefta batata. And it's literally um, like a kefta kebab kind of, you, you can make it turn into like fingers, finger shaped or more of like medallion shaped. And it's, it's just that with um, potato, uh, garlic, onion, uh, just a bit of like tomato sauce and rice. And that's it. But I, I freaking loved it. Kefta batata was my favorite. I also loved kusa, which is um, stuffed, I think like eggplant. 
not 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 eggplant like the green eggplant what is that so so it's that stuffed with uh rice sometimes a bit of meat and tomatoes um that's very good um the peas and rice that i mentioned earlier so those are really like my favorite and every time i go to lebanon like those are the meals that everyone knows like oh we'll we'll make this like once or twice because michael likes it um but other than that, it's there's usually either fatouche or tabbouleh, which are the two types of salad um, that most people eat. Those are definitely on the table. There's also hummus for sure. And uh, after lunch, some Turkish coffee. What makes Turkish coffee unique? I think it's just, it's the purest form of coffee. It's, it's like an espresso you just get grounded espresso beans you boil water you throw the beans in the water you wait until it kind of flips and uh you serve it it's like just very simple coffee a lot of people don't like it because it can be a bit bitter mm-hmm. um, but i enjoy the process of making it i also enjoy drinking it out of the little sip cups that you drink turkish coffee out of you keep mentioning uh tabbouleh and what was the other one Fatouche. Fatouche. How do you make those two? Uh, so tabbouleh is essentially the, the green base of it is parsley. So mm-hmm. you'll, need, you'll need a ton of parsley. Uh, so it's parsley, tomato, diced tomatoes, diced onions. Uh, some in Arabic, it's burghul, which I think is bulgur in, in English. Yeah, I think so. We had this, I had this conversation with Armand too, where he said the same thing. He pronounced it the way you did in Arabic. And I said, you mean okay. bulgur? And he goes, that hurts my ears, but yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's pretty much that with, um, with like a lemon based dressing mixed together and everything's just finely chopped mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's very good. And then fatouche is uh, lettuce, tomatoes, onions, um with kind of like um fried bread like just little little pieces of fried bread and it's usually served with um a different kind of dressing you can you can have it with dipsirmen which is uh pomegranate molasses or you can have it with i, th- I think also just like a lemon lemon sauce but they they add the spice to it um i'm blanking on the name of the spice but it's kind of like this dark red almost purplish spice uh uh submit in arabic i think it's sumac in in english oh sumac (laughs) yeah so you you add that to uh fatouche did you speak arabic growing up or uh did you pick that up along the way or are yeah. there just a lot of words in Arabic that you have to know to talk about Lebanese food? No. So, so I spoke Arabic growing up. Um, I think the first language that I learned was, was French. And then my, my dad thought that French was a women's gossiping language. <laughs> and so he's, he's like, let, let the kids focus on like learning English. Because mm-hmm. French was really used by... In Lebanon, we have you know, like most countries, like stereotypes, and there's the stereo- 
type of like French people that are like the Frenchies, <laughs> Frenchy Lebanese, which are pretentious, stuck up, uh, you know, kind of just whatever you know just they sound uh, like people just think they're like so pretentious and they tend to be wealthier than the average person in lebanon and all sure. that stuff and my dad just associated language with just a bunch of stuck-up people that were gossiping at a hair salon so he's like the kids are going to learn english and so we we started learning english in school because i went to a british school and then our school taught arabic and french as well and so we learned english arabic and french in school is that view of French people like a holdover from uh, when France was in charge? Uh, in part, yes. Uh, I think also it's um, pe- people like to to be associated with with things of uh, of higher class, and they view you know Westerners or European as like slightly higher class and just the overall hierarchy of things. Um, so. You'll see more people trying to uh, flaunt the fact that they went to Paris and they have a house in Paris and they speak French um, and try and use that like European flavor to uh, to add some excitement to their lives. And and, and other people um, just don't speak French. Yeah, you have a decent portion of the population that doesn't speak French. But at mm-hmm. one point, um, you know, all our laws are based off of French laws, um, you know, pretty much the structure of the country is based out of, off of French structure. And then they changed the legal language to Arabic. And um, most signs you will see like street signs you would see in like Arabic and French, Arabic, English, and French. So mm-hmm. a lot of the country kind of operates off either Arabic, French or Arabic and English. Did the nickname the Paris of the Middle East come from all those French influences or was it like, I guess we'll throw that name on top of it to describe this, this prosperity. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know the origin story, but mm-hmm. I will say um, when you think of Paris, you think of a very historically significant city in Europe. That's prosperous. Uh, the center of commerce, art, literature, mm-hmm. um, technology, things of that nature. Lebanon in the sixties was very much the same way. It, it was the, you know, the center of literature, poetry, arts, commerce. I think in the 60s, we had, we were in like the top 10 uh, highest GDP per capita in the 60s. Mm-hmm. In the world now we're probably 140 something <laughs> on the list. Yeah. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a pretty prosperous uh, country and stood out for sure, especially in the Middle East uh, in the 60s your parents have been privy to seeing these changes in Lebanon over the years. Do you ever talk to them about, you know, kind of the back in my day attitude of things you talk to them about what life was like for them growing up and how they've observed the changes to the country? Uh, A bit. I'd say life wasn't, wasn't great for them growing up. Sure. Uh, they, They lived through civil war. That's really when they were like born and young and stuff. And like, even my dad had to go to like mandatory military training before he was like 14 and learn how to do all sorts of crazy stuff and get taken from home and all that stuff. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a peaceful time for the most part. It wasn't a, a happy time. Um, they obviously have their own stories and good memories and stuff, but it, it, it was pretty, pretty challenging uh, growing up there. Uh, just due to the civil war and all the disruptions, et cetera. So 
my my parents made it a point and a lot of a lot of the conflict and stuff is rooted in you know these different militias that are tied to different religions and things of that nature and right. political affiliations and my parents made it a point to not talk about politics my sister and i growing up uh, like i have no idea where anyone in the family leans really or anything and they, they don't even care about politics they don't talk about politics and at the time that was like an uncommon um way to grow up because a lot of my other friends knew a ton about politics and their parents as political affiliation and all that stuff and now you know 10 15 years after like after i started noticing it <laughs> the, the way i grew up is now the more popular thing and where people realize oh like these politicians have do not have our interests in mind they couldn't mm-hmm. care less about us they're the root cause of the majority of the downfall uh and, and just tragedies that take place in the country and and so we we shouldn't have pride in any of these political affiliations or political groups or religious groups that we were a part of uh, because it really leads to like destruction of the, co- the country and when you look at all like going back to my parents they they've seen the same form of destruction that we're witnessing now repeat itself like over and over and over again and even though now it's slightly different and even more challenging than it's ever been um it's just they, they've relived this nightmare scenario so many times that they're kind of numb to it when you look at the way that your parents and maybe their entire generation of Lebanese people came up with civil war um, and conflict and the strife that's come back in more recent years. Do you think there's any relation between that and this attitude of Lebanese individuals that if you're a guest of my home, I want to welcome you and I want you to feel like you're part of my house. I think part of the strong sense of community came from just you know, because it's Lebanon, such a historic place, and um, a lot of areas of Lebanon now were really just really small towns that just grew and grew and grew. And so a lot of things were done on a local level. Mm-hmm. Like you, you knew your local butcher, you knew the person that ran the jewelry store, you didn't have these franchises, yeah, right, or anything. And so you had a relationship with a lot of people because you just had all the skills in that town to kind of help the town run and operate. And you'd have people that would go to the city and interact with other people. But for the most part, like it was a very connected society. Um, You know, you had the neighborhood butcher, the neighborhood engineer, the neighborhood doctor, all that kind of stuff. And I think Mm -hmm. just that strong bond, excuse me, to know different people and, you know, know who to go to, I think contributes to the tight knit society I think also because they just lived through so much war and violence that it helps to know other people. There, there's safety in numbers, there's comfort in numbers. And so, you know, if you have a building and there's bombs falling from the sky, everyone in the building goes to the same bunker, right? And then right. you're, you're instead yeah. of being, being locked in just your own apartments and that private space, you're all kind of living together and taking care of each other's kids. And, you know, if you live in a village, the kids of the village play together. And, you know, it's, if they go to one person's home, the mom knows like, Oh, he's this person's child, this person's daughter, etc. And so everyone knew each other, everyone 
had this common sense of responsibility to take care of each other and support each other. And I think that's where um, it, it comes from. And I think, you know, part of uh, one of Lebanon's and, you know, the second answer is one of Lebanon's major industries or sectors over the last 20, 30 years or however long you want to call it is tourism. Right? Mm-hmm. People, people make a lot of money from tourists, right? It's, it's something that businesses plan for and kind of expect when they, when they do their yearly plannings. And so if you, if you want to make a ton of money from tourists, you have to be a country where tourists feel safe and welcomed in. And, and so you also want to show other people a good time and have them come back the next year and all that stuff. So there's definitely like a business financial aspect to it, but I think a lot of the root in it is uh, just from being such a close knit society uh, on a much smaller scale and then being more connected as the country grew and grew and became more connected. And I think that's interesting that Lebanon, from what you're saying, has kept that sense of knowing your neighbor. And I don't know that that's true everywhere. I think there's lots of places where you used to know your neighbor. um, And now it's very obvious you don't know who's living next door. And instead of embracing that person you don't know, most places will just turn them away. Do you think we're, do you think Lebanon's better off for being like that? You know, I'd say Lebanon's definitely changed and it's not as much like that as it used to be, but like, like growing up in our first house, we knew our neighbors, we knew everyone up and down the streets pretty much. And then when we moved to a new house, when I was like junior year of college, I knew some neighbors, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't at like first name basis. I wasn't, hanging out with their kids or whatever it was. Um, So I don't think it's even, I think, you know, as the world has become, even though more connected, less open and less, less, you know, willing to cross the street and introduce yourself to a neighbor, uh, the same has happened in Lebanon. But um, I think absolutely knowing your neighbors and having that strong sense of community is better than not knowing who you're surrounded by for sure. One way you can get to know people, in my opinion, is get everyone a little loose. Maybe uh, put some drinks on the table. I understand Lebanon has a national drink. Uh, I believe it's called Arak. Arak, yes. Yes. Would you care to tell me about it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's, I think, made from grapes. It's uh, made with anise leaves and... Um, it's a very, very high alcohol proof beverage. Well, like you drink it, you, you pour it and then you pour water and you add ice and that's how you drink it. You like break it with water. Mm-hmm. I think without water, it's probably anywhere between a hundred to 200 proof. And you're not playing around. No, no, you're, you're, you're like, <laughs> and you're, most of the time people uh, order it when they're eating uh, raw meat. So we're big into like raw meat in Lebanon and people would order it when they're eating raw meat because they say like it'll essentially cleanse and just kill all the bacteria in my gut that I might get from the raw meat. So you eat raw meat, you drink and then you you won't get like stomach virus or any of that stuff. What do you mean you're big on eating raw meat? Well, like just like raw, raw meat, like liver, uh, raw ground meat. 
just different types of like really <laughs> yeah that's so cool <laughs> do you have do you season it do you serve it with anything or are you literally just like taking a handful of ground meat and shoving it in your mouth yeah there's a so when, as part of like the appetizers that you could get you could get an appetizer of i, I think it's raw liver and it's just slices of raw liver slices of liver fat and then just a variety of different spices then you just take like the liver the liver fat sprinkles whatever whether it's black pepper or turmeric or whatever spice there is salt and black pepper and you just eat it and it's delicious it's very you you can't obviously order raw meat from like just any random restaurant you have to make sure it's a reputable restaurant with like a known meat source and all that stuff but yeah we're, we're big into raw meats uh you can also eat birds you can order like bird at a restaurant uh what kind of birds i think like quail or something uh, i i don't know what what the main bird is because we also have a big like hunting culture in lebanon um so people hunt birds and then they they clean them and they eat them i've also had uh, like frog in Lebanon, um, it's not bad. It tastes like chicken, kind of. <laughs> so I've been told. <laughs> and um, we, we, we eat a lot of weird stuff. Uh, like we'll eat like testicles in Lebanon. Because um, it's there is this whole kind of like like benefits like diet where if you eat the heart of the animal, it'll benefit your heart. If you eat a liver, an an, liver of an animal, it'll benefit your liver. If you eat an animal's testicles, it'll benefit your testicles. <laughs> in, a very, in a very simplified. <laughs> and, and, and so that's, you know, part of, part of the diet. Um, <laughs> is there any... Is there any scientific backing to that? I don't know if I care if there is or not, but I wonder, has anyone ever looked into that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's known that liver is one of the most nutrient dense foods that you can eat. Right. Cause it's processing all the nutrients. Yeah. So, and I think that there, there <laughs> is it, <laughs> after this podcast, look, look at like the like benefits, like diet, people swear by it. I, I haven't read any research papers on it, but I know, I know just these organs tend to uh, carry nutrients that will benefit your organs if, if you consume them. And therefore, uh, eating the heart of an animal will help your heart. Eating the liver will help your liver. And I do take, there is a kind of supplement seller on Amazon called Ancestral Supplements based out of New Zealand. And I ordered their uh, grass-fed beef liver pills. And I've I've taken them. I've given them to my friends as well. And after a night of drinking, if you take two of these beef liver pills, drink some water and wake up, you won't get a hangover because you've essentially given your liver like just all the super nutrients that it needs to kind of fight the poison that you've just ingested and you're, you're better off after it. Not a paid advertisement. Not a paid That's advertisement. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's out of control. I've always enjoyed liver like as pate. Cause it tastes good. I didn't realize, I didn't realize there were liver pills. Uh, I never heard of this. Like, what'd you say? Like benefits? Like, yeah, I have to look, look into that. 
I mean, is that something that you would regularly do when you go out to eat is get like a, like an appetizer of raw liver? Um, so l- let me just take a step back. Like the liver pills and stuff, that's n- not something you'd find in Lebanon. Right. That's, we, that's we, a here we, thing. Totally we, we, a United we, States we, thing. We eat the actual thing in Lebanon and then, yes, you know, Western countries find a way to just, they, they probably invented the like benefits, like, and branded it and post, put it on Amazon in Lebanon. You're eating the real thing. You're not, you're not taking. Sure. Pills. No one there is trying to push liver pills on you. Someone there is just asking you please to eat this liver. Yeah. Uh, but I'd say. I'd say, yeah, if, uh, if I'm like having just like a Sunday lunch with, with the family, it'll, it'll likely be on the table. Wow. <laughs> I, we're not, we're not eating like, we're not eating, uh, we're not eating in, in the quantities in which we'll like order and eat meat or chicken or right. else, but, but we're, we're having bits and pieces of it. Are you intentionally eating it for the health benefits or are you eating it because it's like culturally significant? And then, Oh, also, by the way, it's good for you. We're eating it mainly because it's, um, you know, just the local thing that people eat and it's good for you. But like I, I was never, and this is the weird thing growing up in Lebanon, I would eat all these crazy things and people would tell me it's good for me, whether, whether it's liver or testicles or whatever it is. Like everyone told me it was good for me. And then, you know, you go to the States and they're like, oh, you can't, you know, meat's bad for you and all forms of meat are bad for you. And then yeah. you turn into a, you know, just a tree hugger and <laughs> you eat, you just eat only greens and, and all that stuff. And then you realize, oh, my energy levels are low. I'm anemic. My, I don't have any iron in my body. Maybe this other stuff isn't bad for me if it's natural and all that stuff. And I kind of did this whole 360 where I grew up eating a very well-balanced diet, mm-hmm. high lifestyle and getting all the nutrients because I was eating a wide variety of fruits, uh, foods and fruits and vegetables and all that, that stuff. And then came to the States and Northeastern's dining hall completely destroyed my body because there's only <laughs> so much pasta and burgers and, chi- and chicken burgers that you can eat. And whatever freaking sandwiches they'd make, like Northeastern's food, you, you could have a salad, but it wasn't a tasty salad. And it also probably wasn't nutritious. In Lebanon, a lot of what we ate was like organic. You you could see the farmer that planted it and you can go pick it up from the farmer and um, just a very rich and varied cuisine. And, and therefore, um, you know, if I could have every time I go to Lebanon, I, I eat so well and I'm so happy. If I could have that kind of cuisine available to me, I'd eat it every day. Yeah. Northeastern is the first place I ever saw tabbouleh. Yeah. And I had no idea what it was. And I, I, I think I tried it once and I was like, this is not great. But the I'm... One at, the one at Northeastern was mediocre. At best. Yeah. Well, this is something I, I've come to realize is that when people tend to not like a food, it's usually because it wasn't prepared well for them. And my first experience with tabbouleh was... I, maybe my only experience, I can't recall having it since then, was at the Northeastern University Dining Hall. And, you know, uh, this isn't, we're not going to sit here and trash on Northeastern because I used to eat uh, so much cereal and so much miso soup in their bad sushi. Um, I was a, a freshman in college, so I'm excused. But if your first experience with the food is going to be a bland, mass-produced version of a salad that comes from a part of the world that's 
very vibrantly seizing, seasoning their food with very fresh produce, you're not getting a realistic version of what that food is. Uh, absolutely. And, and even, even the fruit here is just genetic. Uh, fruit and vegetables are just genetically different. Yeah. Like um, in Lebanon, the largest cucumber that you saw was probably maybe the length of this marker and a bit thicker. Right. So we're talking like maybe maybe six inches. Maybe. It was, yeah. it was just it was just like like small. Versus the cucumbers in the States are are just like baseball bats. <laughs> baseball bats. Yeah. I remember the first time I was like, you don't have like small like these are your cucumbers. Yeah. It, it looked like something completely different. And when you cut it open, it tastes completely different. The one in the States is like you're just tasting cucumber flavored water. Whereas in Lebanon there's it has a flavor to it. Um, and so even if you were to make it tabula with like an American cucumber and all that stuff, it's, it's completely different. It won't even taste the same. You know, someone recently said that the reason that American vegetarian food, and maybe I should preface this. I read this recently. Someone may have said this a while ago. The reason American vegetarian food is bad is because it's always trying to like imitate, um, it's always trying to imitate something. And there's not a lot of foods here that are vegetarian that are like vegetable focused, made with good vegetables. And what you're describing with tabbouleh is like a vegetable focused dish. Primary primary ingredient is parsley for crying out loud. But if you're looking for the vegetables to make it in Lebanon, you're getting like a cucumber that was just picked from like, I'm guessing like a family farm probably, or like not some agro industrial monster. Yeah, it's we we don't have Monsanto raised cucumbers, or or I hope we don't Monsanto raised cucumbers and tomatoes and Monsanto. Don't listen to this podcast in, in Lebanon, and you know we have a lot of dishes that are just naturally vegetarian dishes. Mm-hmm. You no, know, they're just dishes without meat that people eat, and that's just considered part of our cuisine. Um, and so a lot of the vegetarian you know, dishes in the States, like for example, falafel in Lebanon, which is, you know, as us white people might call it falafel, falafel, (laughs) everyone, like all the vegans love a falafel sandwich because it's, you know, chickpea based and, and all that stuff. But it's like, yeah, in Lebanon, it's, it's street food. Right. Falafel is probably the cheapest thing that you can buy at a restaurant. Like it, before the currency devaluation, a falafel sandwich would cost you $2. It was like the thing that you'd buy when you didn't have money. <laughs> like it's yeah. the cheapest thing that you can eat. And uh, people here just love it. And they're just selling it for 12, 13 bucks a sandwich or a bowl or whatever it is. I got to give a shout out, not paid advertisement to Sultan's Market in Lincoln Park. And I think Andersonville um, that they make like a $5 falafel sandwich and it's mm-hmm. a pita stuff with falafel, um, you know, cucumbers, tomatoes, onions, some kind of spicy sauce, whatever. But the reason I really like that place is because they're charging $5 for a falafel sandwich. And I know that they have to make a margin and there's all these things that go into it, but it's one of the very few places in Lincoln Park in particular, where you can find a lunch that's going to be that cheap. And it's, I think I just had a conversation with friends about authentic food, like off air. But when you're talking about authenticity with certain foods, you have to think about where that food's coming from. And if you want to pitch your food as authentic, which I have, you know, a whole 
set of opinions on, you need to consider, is this a street food? And something like falafel, you know, even before you came on and said it's a Lebanese street food, I understood that Middle East, you know, world over, like people are just frying up falafel on the street in carts and sands yeah. and stalls. And to charge, you know, eight, nine, ten dollars for a falafel wrap. I mean, it, it, I, I know it doesn't cost you that much. Like, what are you trying to what are you trying to do here? You, you know, the first time I I really felt that and I felt it strongly was my first semester in Boston. My friends and I, all all Arabs, decided that we wanted to have manusha, which is normally something that you'd buy for like a dollar, a dollar and a half. It's it's just like flatbread with either cheese or zatar and vegetables, and you just eat it for breakfast. And it costs you normally a dollar or two dollars, and it, it's like massive, massive mm-hmm. sandwich. And we we were craving that and we were looking in Boston, like, where can we go get this? And there was this uh, hookah lounge that showed up called Habibi's. I think it was in Brookline uh, that you could go and have it. And so we went, we're like, okay, we'll, we'll order hookah. We'll order, um, you know, some, some like food to eat and some tea and stuff. And in Lebanon, the hookah, if you go to a nice place, like, like you could go to a place called Falamenki, which is known for, for their shisha and, you can, you know, Lamborghinis, Ferraris, Porsches are pulling up to this place. Like super nice place, comfortable seating. The hookah probably costs $10 back in the day. Whereas in Brookline, you go to Habibi's, which is a hole in the wall in the basement of a building with like no ventilation, mediocre hookah, and it's costing you like $50, $60. Yeah. And, I, and it's just a complete scam. And the Manusha, which you would pay a dollar or two for in Lebanon, they were charging eight or nine or $10 for it. And it was half the size that you would normally get. So I'm like, these people are just ripping us off big time. But there are some places, for example, in, in Chicago, I'll take you to a place called Libane in um, like past, past Andersonville near, near Devon. It's on Devon Ave mm-hmm. where like the, the street would major like Indian food is. It, it's all the way up there. Uh, and, and they have great Lebanese food. It's owned by Lebanese people that own a bunch of restaurants in Lebanon. And this is like the, just the U S restaurant and they make their own foods and sweets in house. And it's exceptional and very, very, uh, fairly priced for what it is. Do you worry ever that food in Lebanon is going to go this way where someone's going to get the bright idea of charging everyone three times as much for a falafel sandwich? And then suddenly this accessible food is going to become much harder to get at a regular basis. In Lebanon, all other things being equal, no. But I'd say now with like the complete currency devaluation, anything that was normally cheap to make now costs you like five or six times the same amount of money. And, and so just making Lebanese food and making a lot of these just home-cooked Lebanese dishes would, especially if it has meat or something, has now now become very expensive mm-hmm. and inaccessible to a lot of people and a lot of families. Um, you know, families can't afford to buy meat if it's 10 times the price that they were normally, um, you know, paying for. And and so um, I think in Lebanon now, you're you're starting to see the impact of that, but it's it's not a result of 
people trying to brand the local dishes as something more higher end. It's really just uh, based off of the devaluation of the local currency and purchasing power uh, within the country. Do you think we'll see more Lebanese people coming to the United States? I'm 100%. What's next for Lebanon? Um, not, not, not a bright future, I'd yeah. say, at least in the short term. It's, um, it's a country where its ruling class and its politicians were people that inherited their seats in power. They didn't mm-hmm. earn them. They didn't create them. They inherited them. And when you inherit something, you lack the competence needed to create something. And therefore, you have a lot of mediocre people that are corrupt, that inherited positions of power, that continue to maintain their positions of power, but lack the competence needed to fix a country that's deep in shit. And so I think it's, it's going to be, um, you know, there's going to continue to be currency devaluation, political instability, um, financial distress. I think more, more and more people will slip below the poverty line. The people that can afford to get out will, will travel elsewhere, whether it's in the Middle East or Europe or the States to study or work and learn and just make a living. Um, and then I think after, after we go through a period of tremendous pain, there will, there will be some recovery. It would be made easier if you can wipe out a complete political class and brainwash people and just change the just a re- destroyed ideology. It also will help if you eliminate the terrorist organizations that are part of our government and, and mm-hmm. just you know cause um, cause friction in the country. And so yeah, it breaks my heart when I think about it. I don't think it's a bright future. Uh, a lot of people in Lebanon know it's not. It's it's a dark future and so um it's really really let's let's see how we can go through this with the least amount of casualties and people starving as possible and then see what comes out on the other side do you hope to get your family over here i'd love to i don't think like like my grandparents won't move to the states they've they're they're quite old they they like their life in lebanon they like to live the rest of their life in their home that they know and they're, they're comfortable in um i'd love i'd love to have like my dad closer to the states and um and that family but um i I don't know how realistic it is but short answer is yes i'd love to have my family close to me should people visit lebanon now no i'd say um well yes and no if you want to uh, if you want to enjoy Lebanon with people that um, you know are calm, relaxed, not stressed, want to show you a good time, want to welcome you in their homes and stuff your face with food and sweets, you probably won't get that. If you visit yeah. Lebanon now, people are very tense, they're worried, they're stressed out, they're living below the poverty line. It's it's not it's not a good overall vibe, um, but. If, if you want to help the situation in Lebanon, then it helps to visit, pump in you, you money into the economy, especially the local economies in which you live in, uh, and, help, and help that way, I think, is, um, is, is a reason why you'd want to visit. If people want to get some authentic 
Lebanese food experience, Lebanese culture in the United States without going to Habibi's in Brooklyn and getting ripped off. Uh, are there places where people can get that? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know all the real authentic places, but I could tell you Libane in Illinois up north is very good. Um, and Ushe in New York is very good. Um, anywhere where you can go and get food that's served to you by someone that speaks Arabic probably has uh, <laughs> like some some Lebanese re- religious figure or or, <laughs> or or just just something that describes the fact that he's Lebanese if they have that in the store it's a good sign mm-hmm. and then uh, if the food is reasonably priced I think it's another another good sign like there's Oasis Cafe in the loop where the people aren't Lebanese, but I think they're Palestinian. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's a restaurant in the back of a jewelry store. Yes, I know about this place. And, it, and it's beautiful because it just, it feels right. You know, it's someone that had this real estate that was like, let's sell jewelry. And you know what? Let's also make some food out of it and take advantage of the lunch crowd and loop. And so it's, I love the entrepreneurial nature of it. I love how simple it is. The food is delicious, authentic. It's also cheap as hell and uh just a, it feels like a warm hug so i'd also recommend that like a warm hug i love that can you teach me how to say cheers in arabic yes it's kesak kesak well i'm only having water right now uh but next time we get the chance after lockdowns and vaccinations and all that stuff lines up uh we'll get out maybe we'll have some arak together uh yeah, we'll and we'll it. we'll go enjoy some lebanese food here in chicago sounds good Michael, thank you so much again for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Um, really glad we got to do this exchange with the podcasts. If people want to listen to you, where can they go? They can go to Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify as well. Just type in "Where is AJ?" question mark, and then uh, you'll be able you'll be able to find me. My guest today was Michael Abujaude. Michael, thanks again for coming on today and sharing your stories and knowledge. Glad you could tune in to today's episode of the Joe Feed Yourself podcast. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the show. I've got loads more guests lined up, and I want you to join me for it. Subscribe to the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow me on Instagram at Joe Feed Yourself. And remember what Anthony Bourdain used to say, your body is not a temple, it's an amusement park. Eat something good, and I'll see you again next week.